He humbled himself and washed the feet of his disciples. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master. His body, the bread, given for us. His blood, the wine, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. He carried our sins in his body on the cross, and with his final breath, he gave up his spirit. It is finished. But our Savior destroyed death and arose with our freedom in hand, proclaiming, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all the nations. I'd like to say a very special welcome to those in uh, Boca Raton at Trinity Church of God. It's good to have you with us uh, every week. And normally I would say a uh, shout out to those of you in Skagit, but I'm not going to. In fact, today what I'd like to say is for those of you joining us in Bellingham, we're so glad that you're uh, with us here today, uh, this morning. And the reason I say that is because this morning I'm not here in the building. I'm actually in Skagit preaching. And uh, because today we're opening up our brand new facility with a soft launch. We're so excited about that. So I wanted to be there uh, in person. So I'll be preaching this sermon down there, but it's so good to have you here this morning in Bellingham here in this room. And I uh, also want to say a very big thank you to all of you who've given your time and energy over these last few months with the work days. So many of you have traveled down there uh, multiple times to help out, and we're so excited about that and to be able to be in this building. Also, if you have any family or friends who are not connected with the church that live in the Skagit Valley, why don't you take the chance to invite them to join our congregation there on Easter. It's going to be a fantastic time, uh, two services that morning, and so uh, if you could help us out with that, that'd be great. Those of you watching, joining with us on the live stream right now, it is good to have you with us, and we're so grateful to be able to, to offer this service. Over the last month or so, the people that have told me that have been able to, to join us online, a, a lady, Delpha, who's struggling with some health issues, not been able to be here, said, it's so great, Pastor Bob, I can be with my church every single week, and so we love things like that. Laura Jane from from Esperanza, the Randall family, tunes in every single week, be able to be a part of us that way. Um, Chris and Katie were just in Indonesia, and they watched services in Indonesia. Part of my small group is in Mexico right now watching online, so love you guys. Um, miss you, all those kind of things. Uh, one of them is my wife, so I really do miss you, but anyway... Uh, <laughs> I'll call you later, okay? So, and, and to be able to have that kind of an opportunity, um, this last week, a friend of mine, Lori, has been in Israel, and so I, I said, you can't miss this sermon that Grant and I are doing, and so she watched live stream from Jerusalem, and, uh, and the whole challenge there, and it was funny because this week she texted me, and she said, I found this coffee shop in Jerusalem that has this app that whatever picture you want, they can put it in their program and print it on the foam of your latte and so I took your challenge and she sent me this picture 
with the 416 Challenge. I mean, this is a real thing. I said, did you Photoshop that? She said, no, it's a real thing. I said, well, I want to show everybody. So this is from Jerusalem with the 416 Challenge. Now, if you don't have a clue what the 416 Challenge is, I want to strongly, highly, greatly recommend that you go online and watch last weekend's sermon either from here or from Christ the King Church um, and to, to get a part of this 416 Challenge. It's been so cool this week because the 416 Challenge has not only been embraced by many of you here at Cornwall, many at Christ the King, but the word has spread and there's other pastors and other churches that are doing this as well. And we're so excited about what God is going to be doing on April 16th in our county. So I want to continue to, to encourage you to set those watches and clocks and to be praying for our brothers and sisters around the county that God does incredible things. All right, so... Today, starting a brand new series called Four, and it's going to be for four weeks. That's not the only reason we call it Four. We're going to be looking at four days, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, that Sunday being Resurrection Sunday, Easter. And we're going to be looking at really four events that happened in those four days over these next four weeks. Now, I grew up in church, and in the church world, it seemed like there were like these two big days, you know, Christmas and Easter. Those were the, the two big days of the, of the church world year what I found interesting was it seemed disproportionate of the emphasis that Christmas got over Easter. Now, I don't know if that's partly cultural, but you think about this. And I always narrowed it down this way, that it seemed like Christmas got a season and Easter got an event, got a day or two. In Christmas, you know, people start talking about the Christmas carols and we have all these these decorations that we pull out and, and, and these Christmas pageants and singing Christmas trees and living nativities and all this stuff. And, and it goes on weeks and months, you know, starting some of them begin preparing for it well before, uh, well before Thanksgiving. In fact, in, our, in the church I grew up with, they're singing Christmas tree. Early in the fall, they would start rehearsing and preparing for this. With Easter, not so much. Now, granted, there is the Lenten season, the 40 days, the six weeks leading up. But in most Protestant churches, that's either ignored or overlooked at best. So we don't spend a lot of time in the Lenten season. No one has a singing Lent ball or anything like that. They don't have big Lent pageants as much. And when it comes down to Easter, you, get, you might get two weekends, Palm Sunday and Easter. Now here's what's amazing. You have all this emphasis on Christmas and a little bit less emphasis on Easter. But Jesus, Jesus never said, hey, make a big deal about my birthday. You know, like put together a whole season about my birthday. Remember when I was born. What Jesus does do, however, he says, hey, there's this thing I want to give to you that you will always remember my death. I want you to take this bread, and every time you take it, I want you to remember that my body was broken. I want you to take this cup, and every time you do, I want you to remember that my blood was spilled. He never says, remember when I was born. He says, remember when I died. And he gave us this other thing where he says, go and, and baptize people, this, this symbolic of the symbolism of being buried in death and being raised to life in Christ just as Christ was resurrected. He said, do this. Because your life is a reflection of what my life and death and resurrection was. That there's, you're raised to new life. That Jesus never said, have big birthday parties. He said, remember my death and remember my resurrection. And then you come to the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Two of them don't even mention the birth. There's no birth narrative at all in, in Mark or John. 
Matthew does it, and I think part of it is because he's speaking primarily to a Jewish audience, and he wants to show the fulfillment of prophecies found in Jesus. Luke spends more time talking about the birth narrative, but I think part of that is because he interviewed a lot of people before he wrote his book, and one of the people he most likely interviewed was Mary, and it was really important to her, and so he thought, well, I better put that in, you know, Mary and all, and all that stuff. Now, sorry if I'm offending anybody here, but, but two of the gospel writers don't even mention the birth. All four of them, though, spend an inordinate amount of time on the week leading up to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, if you were to take the content of all four Gospels, almost one-third of the content of the Gospels focuses on the very last week of Jesus' life. I mean, most of the Gospels either skip over or fast forward through the first 30 years. There might be just one little highlight about a thing when Jesus was 12, but other than that, there's not much. And then for the three years of his public ministry, they go through at a fairly rapid pace. But when it comes to that last week, everything slows down. It's almost like as if the gospel story is about the last week of Jesus and everything else is kind of the introduction to this is the story. And so we're going to spend four weeks and we're going to even look not even at that last week, but the last half of that week, the Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Here's a question for you. You don't have to answer out loud, but maybe something to think about. If you had one week to live, I mean, you knew. You're in perfect health, but you know that one week from today, you will not be alive anymore. If you had one week to live, what would you do during that week? Now, I'm not going to ask you to answer that, but my guess is this is that the things that you decided to do, the things that you would plan to do, the things that you would embark on that week in those seven days would probably not be trivial things. You wouldn't be thinking, wow, I've got one week to live. i got to get caught up and get all the way through House of Cards before this whole thing comes to an end. So I've got to do some Netflix binging because I haven't seen all of Stranger Things yet. My guess is the unimportant things would go to the wayside and you would invest your time and your life in those last seven days in what is most important, what is absolutely vital, in things like relationships with people that you love, saying things that need to be said you would become very, very intentional about the important things in that last week. And I think we see that even more so with Jesus. He knows he has one week left. And so he goes after this week. Scripture says this. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. That that, that phrase, resolutely set out. There, there's like very intentionality on that. There's, he's not going to be deterred. And you don't, you don't think Jesus just said, well, you know, I've always wanted, to, always wanted to visit Jerusalem. It's always been on my bucket list. I've got a week left. I ought to go check it. Now, he's been there before. It's not a tourist thing. He's not just curious to see all that stuff. There's something more. And he is determined. He's re- he resolutely set out. Nothing was going to dissuade him from going to Jerusalem. He was fully aware of what would wait for him there. He was fully aware of how the week would end. And he was fully committed to doing that very thing. And not only is he resolutely setting out, but he's trying to prepare his disciples. In fact, he even kind of gives them a a preview so so they won't be totally shocked. They, They miss it completely. But I mean, he spells it out pretty straightforward. Look at this one. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples. So he's not telling mysterious stories and fables that they can maybe try and find. He's explaining to them 
that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. He's preparing them for it. He says, this is what's going to happen. And this is that scene where, where Peter pulls him aside and says, hey, Jesus, let, let me talk to you. I mean, we've got a good thing going here. This is my paraphrase. Right? So he just had this big Palm Sunday thing. Momentum is growing. Everything's up to the right. The people are loving you. This, that kind of talk, not so good. It, it really, people don't, they want to they wanna enjoy this moment. Just go easy on this. And that's where Jesus looks at him and says, you know, Satan, <laughs> nickname for Peter, get thee behind me. You know, because he was resolute. It's going to go forward. So, and you go into this last week, you see that every step with Jesus, every step was deliberate, and nothing was left, left to chance. Everything he did, everything he said, every interaction, all of his choices, his responses, it was very intentional, very deliberate. It wasn't just a happenstance. Even the crucifixion, even his death. This is amazing in John chapter 10, where Jesus said, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. This is beautiful. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. And this command I received from my father. He said, no one would crucify me. No one would take my life if I didn't willingly let them. And no one's going to keep me in the grave because I've been given the authority that I can be raised up again, and I will. He's very intentional about all of this. Now, what's amazing is that in the, in the midst of all of this, in this dramatic week of intense, deep, heavy burden, he's got these 12 guys. Now, granted, they've heard a lot. They've grown a lot. They've come a long way. But sometimes they are still like, you know, as immature as when he first started. Like the Keystone Cops is like, are you serious? So they're at the Last Supper. This is like, you know, the Thursday. They're at the Last Supper. They have no idea that where they're sitting is going to be one of the most famous paintings of all time. They're sitting there, and while they're at the Last Supper, when Jesus is preparing to institute communion, which followers will celebrate for thousands of years all over the globe. This, I mean, this is a big, big deal. And while they're gathered there with Jesus, while he's carrying the weight of the world, knowing he knows that in a matter of 15 hours he will be crucified, this takes place. A dispute arose among them, the disciples, as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Here's Jesus carrying the weight of the world, and they're arguing about who's the greatest. They're posturing themselves for, for their status and, and, and building their case for why they're greater than you and why you're not as good as me, and, and to have this position of authority and to have this power and, to, and all this greatness. And what's amazing about Jesus in this setting is that Jesus doesn't reprimand them for their competition about greatness. Jesus redirects their ambition. He redefines, he says, you want to be great? I want you to be great. But let me tell you what true greatness looks like. Let me redefine greatness for you. And let me show you how to reach true greatness. Because the avenue to greatness is this path that goes down. So I want you to be great. You want to be great? I want you to be great as well. But let me tell you, how greatness comes about. He says, you've seen it in the world. He says, you know, he talks specifically about the Gentiles, how they lord it over you, how they power up, how they have authority, how they rule with an iron fist. And he follows up and he says, but you're not to be like that. Instead, the greatest, that's what you want, right? 
the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. And then he asks him this question. Okay, so who is greater? The one who is at the table or the one who serves? Remember where they are. And remember, they're around this table. In that culture, hospitality around the table was a huge thing. And the servants would come in. Which would be greater? The one at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you, Jesus speaking, I am among you as one who serves. See, he's not just giving a restaurant analogy here. They're sitting around a table. The greatest table. The most impactful, most profound table that ever was. They're sitting around that table. And Jesus says, who's greater, the one that sits at the table or the one that's serving? Because people are probably getting ready to bring food in and such. So it's an obvious answer. And he says, but I, but I am among you, and he could have said, as one who's at the table. Or he could have said, I'm among you as one who is at the head of the table. Or, with the Da Vinci painting, at the center of the table. Or the guest of honor at the table. But he says, I, I'm as the one who serves. And Jesus tells him this, and he lays this out. And as he's doing this, they're sitting around the table, trying to take it all in. And Jesus does something that they never ever would have imagined. Now, today what we're going to do is we're going to spend, actually today and next week, at that table. Today we're going to look specifically in John chapter 13. It's a passage of scripture that we looked at just a year ago. This is, I mean, I absolutely love, I've grown to love this passage of scripture. And in this passage, we see something that is, with Jesus, absolutely disturbing and difficult mysterious and beautiful at the same time, challenging and unbelievably inspiring. So we're going to look at Matthew, or at, excuse me, John 13, and we're going to take one little, one little detour and come back. John 13, John is the only disciple that records the events that we're going to look at today. Other disciples, or other, uh, other of the uh, gospel writers talked about some of the other events. He's the only one that talks about this. So here they are in the upper room. John chapter 13, verse 1 says, It was just before the Passover feast. Now, I just want to say this, a little, a little precursor. Next week, next week we're going to be looking specifically at this whole thing of the Passover feast. And it was something that the Jewish people did every single year's, year, had been doing it for thousands of years, and it reflected back to what God had done in Exodus. And, and all of the rich symbolism of their history, as they would do this year after year, it was to remind them of what God had done, how God was faithful, how God would deliver them, how the, the blood of the Lamb would deliver them. It was all looking back to remind them of what had happened in their history. And what they don't realize is that all of that happened to point to what would be fulfilled in Jesus. So next week, we're going to dive into that, seeing Jesus in the Passover. For some of you, it's going to be like, whoa, dots connected, you know, lights are going to come on, you're going to go, I never saw that, never realized that. Amazing stuff. Do not miss next week. So, it's right before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Some of your translations may say, he now loved them to the end. But I like this, the full extent of his love. Because greater love has no man than this, than he would lay down his life for his friends. But it's not just the crucifixion, I think. It's what he's just about ready to do. 
The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. So here they are at the table. Jesus loves these guys. As goofy as they are, he loves them. Now he's going to demonstrate his love on an even deeper level. And he knows that this is the last time they'll gather like this at this table. And the meal is being served. But the meal is not the only thing that will be served that night. The other little thing is Judas has already set into motion this plan to sell out the Savior for 30 pieces of silver, to turn him over, that he'd be crucified. That was already in play. What's amazing is in verse 3, when it says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. He knew that he had put all things under his power. Jesus isn't questioning or wondering, am I the Messiah? I mean, could this be like I'm the Christ? Some people think he, he didn't know, he may have not found out. You know, Jesus knew exactly, and he knew that all power and all authority had been given to him. Think about this. He's sitting at the table with Judas, who's already sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. He's been given all power over Judas. He's sitting there with Simon Peter, who's going to deny him three times and draw down curses on himself, swearing about not knowing him. He's got power and authority over him. He's got ten other disciples that are going to run, scared to death. They're, gonna, they're, gonna, they're going to abandon him. He has power over them. They're under his power. There will be some Roman guards who will arrest him in the garden. They're under his power. He will come before Pilate and Caiaphas. He'll be uh, in front of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They'll be screaming, crucify him. They're all under his power. He has power over all of this. There will be some Roman soldiers who will nail him to a cross, and they're under his power. Not just all of them, but all things in the cosmos are under his power. That he has power over things in heaven and on earth and under the earth, visible and invisible. He has all power. You understand this? This idea that Jesus wasn't really sure what was going on, wasn't sure who he was, that's not the case. He knows exactly with all this, everything under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God, this word, so. Now, I gave you a glimpse into my life two weeks ago when I was sitting at a stoplight, and there was a little punk sitting next to me, and, and, and some of you remember, if, and I, if I were God and what I would do, Okay, let's revisit this. If I had all things under my power, and these people sitting around my table, and knowing what was going to happen in 15 hours, so this verse would end a whole lot differently. <laughs> and it would for you too. See, this is a good thing why I am not God. You guys, none of you would stand a chance. I would have sent all of you to hell a long time ago. All right, so I'm just kidding. You're saying, oh, no, no. Okay, never mind. So... So he got up from the meal, all these things under his power. He got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, remember this, those of you who've heard me preach on this, and maybe for some of those who have not heard this, washing of feet was the most degrading chore that there could be. 
So much so that if you had a Jewish servant, by law, you could not require them to wash the feet of your guests or yourself. By law. It was that degrading of a task. You can imagine the, the state of their feet. I mean, listen, we have socks and shoes and Dr. Scholl's and super feet and, you know, little pumice things. They had sandals and donkeys and dirt. I mean, you want to talk about gnarly. You go into the zone of someone's foot in that day, that was the gnarl zone. This was nasty, McNasty. This was the worst of the worst. And Jesus kneels down and washes their feet. Now keep in mind as well that all these disciples have been playing king of the mountain. They're all talking about who's going to be on the top. They're all pushing each other down, trying to get to the top and stay to the top. They want to be the one. They're, they want to be. And the last thing that would have ever crossed their mind would have been to ever wash anyone's feet. It, they would have never even, it was unthinkable. It couldn't even, it's not even in the realm of, there's, it's not even a, a, a and even a people of a thought that they should ever do that. And remember, everything Jesus does is very intentional and very deliberate. And he knows this is the last time he'll be in this setting with these guys. It's an amazing thing. Because he goes around and he begins to wash their feet. All of their feet. And this whole exercise is part of this ongoing thing that's been happening. It's, it's Jesus' intentional downward journey. It's not the only step down that he'll take. You know, the, the arrest and the accusation, that'll be another step down. The flogging, the crowd screaming, the crucifixion, all that will be steps down. But he intentionally, deliberately takes the step down to wash these disciples' feet. Now, I want to push pause on this story. We'll come back to this story, but I want to take a little, bit of a little bit of a rabbit trail here. What Jesus is trying to teach them is that their greatness is not found in self-centeredness or in serving themselves, but it's in others. That's a lesson that we, humans, have had to deal with forever. We continue to deal with it. That it's not about self-centeredness. It's not about a self-focus. It's not about us. You know, it's not about trying to, to, to get on top and to, and to climb up to greatness. So years later, this is my little rabbit trail. The Apostle Paul writes a letter to another group of followers after Jesus. Not the 12, but another group, a church. And they're dealing with the same thing. Trying to figure out, you know, what does true greatness look like? What, what does it mean to be a follower of Christ? What does it mean to be transformed into his likeness? And so he writes this letter and he addresses the exact same issue. And, and he starts off and, and he just, he throws out some of these, again, these of course answer like questions. He says, if you, have, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, I mean, who wouldn't have encouragement from being united with Christ? If you have any comfort from his love, of course we have comfort from his love. If you have any fellowship with his spirit, the comforter, the one that comes alongside, of course we have fellowship with the spirit. So if you have any compassion, or, then Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. And then he tells them, he says, says, do not do anything. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Instead, he says, each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. 
Then he gets to verse 5, and he quotes what many, uh, many authors and scholars believe was a hymn of the early church that they sang. Verse 5 says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So the way you think, you're approached in this. And here he quotes this thing, which many think is a hymn. Talking about Jesus. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. That's an interesting line. Made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Now, I've mentioned this before. Whenever I look at a scripture, if there's something that's repeated, I take note of that. There's something repeated here. He's in very nature God, and he takes the very nature of a servant. This is the essence of who he is. That he makes himself nothing. That he is God. He's the unlimited, infinite, eternal one. And self-limits himself. He pours himself out, becomes nothing. Instead of being unlimited, now he is limited. Instead of being eternal, now he's in this temporal, finite body of a human being. He's the creator of all things. Spoke the world into existence. Marks out the heavens with the span of his hands. Sustains it all. And now he is a created being. Makes himself nothing. He's been worshipped and glorified for eons. And now he's mocked and ridiculed and spat on. He has been all-powerful. And now he gets tired and hungry and thirsty. In very nature, God, but he becomes nothing. See, this downward step of journey started years before the foot washing thing happened. And here's what's so good. And I, I know I've shared this with some of you before. I love this. This word being. Uh, Gerald Hawthorne, in his commentary on Philippians 2, uh, on Philippians, spends a lot of time talking about this word being. Now, I'm going to say some things that are going to make me sound like I'm really, really smart. I'm not. Gerald Hawthorne is. And I can memorize stuff. So it's going to make me sound like I'm really smart. I had no clue about this. This word being, and I shared with you a few weeks ago, I didn't do good in English. This word being, in the, in the original, is a circumstantial participle. <laughs> I have no clue what a circumstantial participle is, but I like saying it. It's a circumstantial participle, which means depending on the circumstance, it can be read in two ways. It, it can be concessive or it can be causal. <laughs> no clue what I'm talking about. Concessive means like despite of or, or although. Causal is, you know, because. So this is the way you could look at this. We could say, if you wanted to use the word being concessively, like despite the fact, we could say it this way. Being Mariner fans, we think our team's going to take it all the way this year. Okay, it's like, despite the fact that we're Mariner fans, we say this every year, it's our year, this is going to be the year. Okay. Causal would say, being Hawks fans, we think we're going to take it all the way to the end this year. Well, there's some precedence for that. One of them is, despite the fact that, yeah, we, we like the Mariners, we're going to hold on to this. The other one is, because of the fact that we like the Hawks, we believe these things. And he goes on, Hawthorne goes on to say, we so often look at this verse as if it were concessive. Like, like despite the fact that Jesus was in very nature God. You know, although that's the case, he kind of 
kind of disguises that whole thing, and he, and he becomes like, like this servant, but it, he kind of masks his true identity. And as I was thinking about this and, and trying to memorize these big words and stuff and looking very, very smart, I, I thought of, of, of an analogy that might be really weak, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. When I was in high school, way back, um, in the mid to late 70s, Boston came out with their debut album. And it was shot to meteoric success. I mean, just sold millions of albums. And uh, with more than a feeling. I mean, that's still used. And, I mean, it's just unbelievable. Tom Schultz was uh, one of the founding members, the producer. He's a guitar player. He's not just a guy that played guitar in his mom's basement. He's an MIT graduate. And part of what he did was that he created these effects pedals for his guitar to make his guitar sound like no other guitar had ever sounded before. And then when they put this album out, I won't go into all the details of the story, but how they got onto a label is a fascinating story. But his guitar solos and his 12-string guitar and his, his uh, harmonizing guitar solos, it's amazing stuff. I loved that album. So 25 years later, in 2003, a friend of mine, Terry Hunt, had tickets, and Boston was coming to the White River Amphitheater. And he said, you want to go to Boston? I'm like, serious? I mean, I know they're old now, but yes. So we went, and we were there, and, and the opening band, who knows what it was. I don't know what that, that opening band, some, some local band probably. I, I don't know, Gladstone or something. It's, it's the local bands there. So, so they get off, and when they're done playing their set, then uh, if you've been here, you know how this is. You know, the, all the roadies come on, all the stagehands, all the crew comes out, and they're moving all this equipment off, and they're getting it out of the way, and then they're bringing all the other stuff in and setting up all this stuff, and we're all talking, and no one's paying attention. And, and, and so they're going, and they're doing sound checks, you know, with the, the bass drum, and they're doing all this stuff. And, and then while all this is happening, there's a guitar tech that comes out, and he's got a hoodie sweatshirt on. And he's got these guitars, and he's setting them up over here, and he just kind of is over here looking at these guitars and grabbing them and tuning them and such. And, and then, you know, and, you know, thousands of us out there, and he's just kind of doing that. You know how guitar techs do? Kind of playing, and then he's kind of hitting some of these pedals and, and all this stuff, and no one's paying attention. And all of a sudden, he does the unthinkable. He starts playing a riff that we all know because it's a Boston riff. A guitar tech should never play a Boston riff before a Boston concert. <laughs> that is the ultimate foul. He's playing a Boston riff that we're all knowing. We know what it is. And all of a sudden, he keeps playing, turns around, pulls his hoodie off. Who is it? Tom Schultz. He's like, there he is, the MIT grad. Here he is, the one who put together Boston. There he is. He pretended. He masked the fact that he's the MIT grad, that he's the founder of this band, and he's out there pretending to be a guitar tech. And he says, when we read this concessively, that's what we think. God is back there, and he puts on his hoodie, and he doesn't want anyone to recognize him. He goes out, and he pretends like he's a, a guitar tech. He pretends like he's a servant. Hawthorne comes along and says, that's the absolute wrong way to read this scripture. The way we need to read this scripture is that being is not concessive. It's causal. It's not despite the fact that he was in very nature God, in spite of the fact, although it's precisely because he was in very nature God that he became a servant. Becoming a servant wasn't putting on a hoodie so that it could disguise his identity. Becoming a servant was revealing, it was exposing his true identity. 
that when Jesus does this with the disciples, when he washes their feet, he's not hiding who he truly is. He's showing who he truly is. He's showing his true greatness. He's showing what God is all about, that God is a God who serves and that Jesus is a man of incredible humility and that that's the path, even for the Son of God with all power under his control, that's the path to greatness. Now verse 8 says, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. We're going to look at that for the next two weeks. Back to the story. So he's washing their feet. He goes from disciple to disciple. And, and there's a lot that John leaves out, which gives me all kinds of latitude to speculate. As he's washing their feet, I don't think he just super soakers them. I think he takes them one at a time. And he's washing their feet. Jesus just looks up at each of them. Maybe remembers and tells them about that day that he chose them as one of his disciples three years ago. And why he chose them. What he saw in them. Maybe there's some gentle razzing about something that's happened in the last three years. And maybe he does a little vision casting of this is what's going to, this is what's going to do. Andrew, this is where you're going to go. Thomas, this is what's going to happen here. And maybe he prays for them. And one by one, he goes to each of his disciples. And then he comes to Peter. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? He says, of course. And Thomas, uh, Peter says, absolutely not. There's no way you're not going to do that. And Jesus says to him, listen, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. Kind of throws down an ultimatum. Typical Peter fashion. He says, well, then fine, wash my head and my hands too. Like, Settle down. And Jesus says to him, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said, not everyone was clean. So he goes around washing these disciples' feet, 10 of whom are going to just abandon him. He just gets done washing Peter's feet, who's going to deny him. And he even washes Judas's feet, who sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. And as I read that story, I think, what if what if there was that other guy there? Bob Marvel. With as many times as I've failed him, as many promises as I've broken, as judgmental, as critical as I've been, that Jesus would come and wash my feet and remind me of the day he called me. He would tell me what he sees in me. Pray for me. You were sitting at the table, come and wash your feet, tell you why he's so glad that you're a daughter of the king, you're a son, what he wants to do through you, he believes in you, that's why he chose you, and he prays for you, that he would wash all of our feet. See, the highest came to serve the lowest including us. Jesus said, I did not come to be served, 
to serve. So I think he looks at his disciples and says, you guys want to be great, don't you? And that's what the argument was about. (laughs) Who's the greatest? I want you to be great. I really, really do. I want all of you to be the greatest. But how you get to that is far different than what you think. It goes on. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you, he asked him. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, that's what I am. Teacher and Lord, rabbi, master. These are terms of great respect. These are titles of immense authority. These are are positions to be honored. This is, deference is given to your teacher. Submission is given to your master, to your Lord. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. And now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you would think of say, so wash my feet. But he says, you also should wash one another's feet. Like that thing that you thought was unthinkable, what I just did for you, that's what I want you to do for each other. Some of you um, were here last weekend, heard Grant and I talk about the pastors praying for pastors when we did a foot washing service, and what an incredibly powerful time that is. And this is just a little um, information for you. In our church, uh, once a year, we give people an opportunity to, to take very literally this passage of Scripture. And it's coming up on, on April 12th at our refuge service. Now, some of you are saying, hmm, sounds like I got something to do that night. Not be at church. Relax. No one has forced anyone to wash feet or be, have their feet washed. That service will have great worship. We'll have a time of communion. You don't have to be involved with the foot washing. But there are people in our church who've come to that service and said, that was the most powerful experience I've ever had. It's one of the most beautiful things I've ever done. And so I just want to invite you. You don't even have to participate. You can just kind of check it out and then just worship and, and take communion on April 12th to follow the example of what Jesus did for us. I, I tell you this. It's kind of humbling to wash someone's feet. It's far more humbling to have your feet washed. But this is what I know about Jesus, is that humility is his philosophy. That's what he's all about. He humbled himself. He poured himself out. He became nothing. He humbled himself. He brings about this concept of the upside-down kingdom. And it finishes out. Let's, let's get to the end of this. I've set you an example that you should do as I've done for you, which is kind of interesting. Nowhere in the written scriptures is there any record that any of the disciples washed each other's feet. Now, they may have. I hope they did, but we have no record of that. It says, I'm asking you to do what I've done for you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master. Now he's talking to his 12. Now he's talking to us. You call me master. You call me Lord. Are you greater than me? Are you above me? Are you, you can't stoop as low as me? And nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Jesus was sent from God. He says, I'm not saying that I'm greater than God. I'm in very nature God, but to grasp that, that was not my goal. I poured myself out. And then he says, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. John Ortberg said this. The primary reason Jesus calls us to servanthood 
is not just because other people need our service. It's because of what happens to us when we serve. Yeah, the world needs to be served, and we do that, but that's not the primary reason. It's what happens within us, that when we serve, when we humble ourselves, then it slays that self-centered nature. It drives another, another, another nail into the coffin of, of this selfish, egocentric, pride-filled person and brings about another step of transformation into the image of Jesus Christ, the ultimate servant, the one who is humble. We become more like Christ when we serve, when we humble ourselves. He says, that's the path to greatness. That's where you'll be blessed. That's the way to true life. One more verse, and I'm done. And Jesus said, the greatest among you will be your servant. That's a statement about how we live our lives. You know what else that is? That's a statement about Jesus. Because there's never, ever been anyone greater among us than Jesus. And he's our servant. And he calls us to follow his example and to be like him. This isn't like very difficult to understand. This isn't like, oh yeah, that was so far over my head. This is about humbling ourselves and serving. And so the challenge I want to throw out to you this week is that every single day you would find ways to serve. And don't do it for recognition. Don't do it saying, oh, I get to share this with my small group or I'll, you know, email Pastor Bob or whatever. Do this for you and Jesus. And when you do this, be careful about getting pride filled. Look how humble I am. I'm so much more like Christ. Gotta, gotta fight that thing. But just to find ways, if you're married, in your marriage. If you're in a family, in your home, with your kids, with your parents, at work, with your coworkers, and your team, and your roommates, and people at school, people you interact with throughout the week, the people who serve you, how can you serve them? To find ways to follow Jesus and being more like him on the path to true greatness by serving. Hey, Bellingham, I'm going to turn you over to uh, Jeremy and the team. It's good being with you. Have a great day.